1: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Book Shambles, producer Trent here. Our guest on today's episode is Musa Okwonga. Before we get to Robin and Josie's chat with Musa, a few things to say. As always, thanks to our Patreon supporters. Of course, patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to subscribe and support the podcast. You get extended editions of Book Shambles each and every week, 20 extra minutes for Patreon supporters of book shambles on this week's episode plus you get access to an uncanny hour and tips for existence and behind the scenes stuff and all other various goodies the final episode of season two of an uncanny hour goes out tomorrow that's all about silent running and features Stuart Lee and Mark Kermode and Helen Chesky and Gemma Arrowsmith and others Uh, the latest episode of tips for existence is with current leader of Taskmaster Sarah Kendall and next week we're talking to Adrian Owen Don't forget, if you're not already subscribed to Science Shambles, our weekly Q&A show with Robin and Helen Chersky. That's also live on YouTube every Sunday. Wife on Earth, Joanna Neary's comedy podcast, Brain Yapping, the mental health podcast with Dean Burnett, and Rachel England, and all sorts of other stuff. Cosmicshambles.com is where you'll find all of that. So do go and have a look. Now, on to this week's episode, here is Robin and Josie with the author of the new
2: book, one of them, Musa Okwonga. First of all, like, lovely to meet you both at last. Yes, yes funny, me funny, isn't it,
0: that, that we were saying about that, the bit where you go, yeah, there's a lot of communication, but there's no, re- you know, the reality uh, yeah. of it, it's, yeah. Well,
2: yeah, I, was like, I know him really Ivy well. <laughs> yeah, I've never actually seen either of you face to face, um, obviously admire your work. Um, and yeah, like, great to meet, and where, <laughs> let's just, just jump straight back into it, like, So writing this book, one of them about, you know, my time at boarding school, private school, and it's weird because although I know it's about obviously one particular school, eating college, but there's a reason why in the book I don't use the word eating that often. Mm -hmm. There's a reason why I don't mention individuals, there's a reason why I don't mention names of statues and streets, because I think that when you name a thing too often, you actually build its myth. And I wanted to deconstruct it. I wanted to give people an immersive feeling. I wanted to take them into that environment and be like, the reason I'm not mentioning the word eaten so much in the book is because I want people to feel like this could be any private school. It could be Malvern. It could be um, Bradfield. It could be Millfield, anywhere like that, like Marlborough. I wanted people to read it and anyone that's been to private school could be like, these dynamics are basically the ones that we see in all these private schools. And I basically wrote it because I was like, what are we doing? you know, what are we doing? I got invited to this twenty-year anniversary for school and I, you know, I had a great career at school, time at school, but I was like, it's not just about me. Like it's about, you know, I thought how it's, it's important to write about situations where you benefit, but other people don't. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't do that, especially in the UK, right? People don't talk about it. Like there's, yeah, you know, it's so weird. There should be more books like this
3: But it's, I think it's in part because we've been convinced that anything that can be categorised as hypocrisy is the worst possible thing, as opposed to, so it's like, well, you're a hypocrite then, because you went there and you don't like it. And it's sort of like this way to sort of rule
2: out any kind of criticism. I I got it's like, I got really good treatment from the NHS, so I shouldn't criticise a lack of beds. Yeah. That's ridiculous. The logic of that is ridiculous. And I'm like, what are those people hiding? What are they hiding behind that logic? Because... Like, well,
3: I think it comes down to the deepest desire to preserve the status quo uh, in terms of who holds power and who does not
2: Yeah, because for me I'm like you know you're at school and you talk about leadership and all the rest of it and I was like hang on a minute like well what are we leading like you know you go to a school like that and it's prestigious and don't be wrong like education was amazing but you're like well where are we going like what are we celebrate 20 years on we've had like these two prime ministers David Cameron who promised stability and He's delivered many things to the UK, but stability is not one of them. <laughs> and then, you know, Boris Johnson's gonna get a statue. He's gonna get like a statue in like the school. And I'm like, but what for? Like, what are we actually celebrating? Like, cause people, children are gonna look at that. Students are gonna look at Boris Johnson's bust in the upper school building and they're gonna see it. They're just gonna see Johnson and that's gonna be it. They're gonna be a bust without any context at all. And the message is basically that guy's on a wall. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really matter how he got there because, and this was my, this was my issue really. I was like, that's not a good look. Mm-hmm. What are we actually, you know, what are we celebrating here? So I kind of, for those reasons, I like, know. And, and there's also the sense of like, you know, 20 years on, you know, this is an environment where people go on and go to like these corporate jobs. And when I hadn't done that, you know, I wanted to be a writer, all this stuff. And I was like, well, part of me was like, on a personal level, do I want to go back there? And like, and I, my friend was like, you know, as it says in the book, like I was hesitant. My mate was like, you're like worried about being judged because you didn't go and do the traditional corporate thing. And I was like, well, on a human level, yes. And I thought, actually, that's also quite relatable. So I thought I'd write the book because firstly, on a political level, I wanted to kind of grasp it, but also on a personal level, who can't relate to being awkward, about going back to a reunion? Mm. So I thought I'd just go for it.
3: Well, I think it's. I really like the fact that the book is so multifaceted. Like it was very. It's very interesting to me because I'm somebody who has been a fan of your work for a long time, and I love to read your work about politics and society. And then in it, I was reading it, and I was like, "Oh yeah, he's also a football journalist." But I don't notice that because I'm not a football person. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, and then it was. It was quite funny to me because I did think to myself, "Wow, like you're probably the only writer in the world that would get me to read a memoir about eating." and football (laughs) (laughs) but I I love yeah but I love the fact that like I think it's so good and I think probably because you've approached it from a personal angle saying like well these are all the parts of me these are all the things that were happening that actually I I I love the fact that like it's also a journey of you playing football and loving football and you loving that school and treasuring it and, and who you were as like a sweet young boy who was really sort of into it all. And then you can see you as an adult making these reflections too. And, and I just find like the fact that you've allowed, you've still got space in it for these other parts of you and of it, I, I think makes it like such a rich thing to read.
2: I'm so glad to hear that because I just thought, uh, first of all, thank you so much for that. And secondly, like it's quite emotional, actually. And secondly, I thought the only way to do this is to be vulnerable and start it and like Mm. not know where you're going to end up Mm
1: -hmm.
2: because this is a school, you know, this school is like, it's criticized, it's hated. And it's also a place that for me, it gave me so much. And I was like, it felt strange. It felt like leaving home and it felt like, you know, my God, can you really do this? I thought I have to, because, I have to, because I've, I've got, you know, so many friends who are like, they hate, they hate ETA, like hate it, what it symbolizes, but also not, not just what it symbolizes, what it, what it is to them, right? Mm. Not just the kind of abstract, they act, actively hate it. That school is, is part of me. And that was always strange, it's like, how do you navigate a world where people you love hate a thing that is part of you? but also not a, not a part of you like race, not a part of you like sexuality, a part that you chose, like I chose to go there. I was excited and thought, so what does that say about me? What does that say about the people that went there? That said, you know What does that, and I just, I had no idea when I began writing where I was going to end up. And I thought the only way to do it is to be vulnerable and talk about things that I loved, that I didn't love, things that I did that I was not proud of actually, you know, and not just things I did that, you know, a person I was at times. And I I said, that is really important because we don't do that enough in England. And I thought, weird enough in a time of fake news, right? Fake news and like falsification, everyone putting on a front, I thought the most radical way to shatter that is like radical vulnerability. Mm -hmm. So actually I've written like two memoirs this year. This is one of them, well, two come out this year. And like, I was like, the only way to do it is to indict yourself. You know, you have to indict yourself, especially if you're part of a system and a structure and people will hopefully read this book and be like, oh, he didn't name anybody but himself. I was like, yeah, because it's it's holding myself to account. We don't get anywhere unless we do that. And that was where I wanted to kind of, to start. So, yeah.
3: Well, also, I think that when you're coming from that standpoint, you are then able to say, and you know what, this thing, you know, I, like you were saying earlier about this thing benefited me and I love this thing and yet I still believe that this thing is bad for society, and yet I still believe that we need to change, and that this can't go on. Like I think that's so powerful because it's sort of drawing people in, letting them so, like see what you loved about it, and then kind of being
2: able to say, "Look, here we all and are." Still, yeah, and still, you know, it feels like um, it feels like a friend where you're like, "I know we've been friends for years, but this stuff isn't cool. Like mm. this stuff can't look. Look, what is this about? What are we doing? Like, are we really proud of?" we've had these two prime ministers, right, 2005, David Cameron, Boris Johnson, and what challenges have we faced? The pandemic, we've got climate change, we've got all these things coming, and what what have we done? Like, what have they done that future generations will look at and be like, my goodness, they moved the world forward, Mm -hmm. they arrested the, you know, the the melting of the ice caps, you know, they did this and they, they invested in renewables, what have they got to show? And I was like, well, as a school as an institution that prides itself on on creating prime ministers you're implicitly proud of that creation so what are you proud of what are you proud of and there's a point where i talk about like what where's the statement about you know there, there was a big statement recently there was um i saw in the news i got asked to comment on it. i'm like no i'm not talking about that come on I'm not your like go to eating guy come on man like I'm not your go-to woke Eaton commentator, which is what they're trying to do. You know, they, in, the, in the UK, <laughs> they can't just they can't just like have someone critique it. It's got to be like Punch and Judy. Let's go, a woke guy. And yeah, I said, like, no, yeah, I'm not. Yeah. I said, please, man, I just ducked out of this. But it was interesting how a teacher got sacked at Eton recently um, for promoting views like about the falsification of rape statistics, right? So he gets sacked. And there's like this massive open letter it gets signed by like two and a half thousand students and like former students and whatever. And they did this big thing about like, he should be reinstated and like, Where's the mass open letter criticising what has done in our name as a school mm-hmm. when the prime mm-hmm. Minister is going to behave this way? Where's that? There's none, there's no open letters like interesting. It's funny what gets people wound up mm-hmm. in the UK in relation to class.
3: And it so. really makes me think about the UK as a whole being part of this mass delusion. Like you're saying about the symbol of Boris Johnson is enough, you know, the statue of Churchill is enough. No examination, please, into the truth, into no, reality. No
2: examination, no, no
0: see I thought what I find interesting in one of the things you touch on in the book which is a kind of and it's interesting that it does feel that it's something that somehow along the line gets learnt in this system which is the uh victim bully bully victim status which Mm. is and we see this the whole time I mean in fact when you're talking about you know the, the way that woke is used so so woke and cancellation gets talked about If anything Mm. happens from the the side of the left, someone saying that you should basically sack BBC presenters if at any point they make a joke about the using of a flag for a government to cover up its shortcomings is not the same as cancellation. It's not the same thing. And and it is that speed in which you can see someone – and you see it with Boris Johnson, you saw it with David Cameron, we see it in a lot of institutions – where the person with the hugest platform and the most power – also says, and I think you'll also find I'm the most oppressed. So you mention it with Oxford and Cambridge, for instance, the fact that, oh, it's going to be really tough because, you know, actually it's a disadvantage going to get in Oxford and Cambridge, which is an incredible leap to make and shows no understanding of any other part
2: of society or how it works. Absolutely nailed on. I love that you've noticed that. And I think it's actually that trait of being, you know, self-victimisation and then domination is so interesting because you see how self-aware it is. Because the, the flip to dominance to domination is like in the blink of an eye. Oh, I'm the victim of the victim, all of a sudden I'm the dominant one. It's like it's it's always like a kind of it's almost like cosplay. You 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 victimize yourself, and it's a form of cosplay to allow yourself to feel good about your dominance. And that's what I think it comes down to at some level. It's the entitlement, you know, it's the whole package. And I think, you know, people might ask what I intend to achieve with this book. I I I've been asked that and I, I'm like, well, I just had to write it for me, actually. I had to write it for me. I had to, you know, it's like writing a, you know, you've both written long pieces, you've written stand-up. There's, when you, the best work is when you begin with a place of inquiry and you don't know where you're going to yeah. end up. And I have, it's weird because the book feels like a story when I read it back, but it's absolutely not a narrative. It was written in fragments and I had to like, I wrote it in separate fragments <clears throat> and then rearranged it into chronological order.
3: Yeah, I th- I do think the best kind of writing just comes from that that feeling of, like you say, I have to do this, I have to answer these questions I, I for myself. To, I had
2: to, yeah, I had to because there was an element of guilt as well because, you know, I, um, my my father passed away just before his 41st birthday and I reached an age where I was going to shortly be older than him and I was like what do I do after that because I never thought I'd live to yeah, I just kind of thought I'd drop dead at 40 it sounds ridiculous wow. but I just never imagined myself living beyond his age because you don't as a kid like and um so I was like I need to go and talk to him about this because I'm 36 and I think I've got four years left and I don't have done anything with my life so I went and talked to this counselor therapist and he said it's funny because you talk about your race and your sexuality but you never talk about school you never talk about boarding school and you talk about everything else but that and I was like well I think it's because I chose my class and I feel accountable for that choice. Um, And I was ashamed of that, actually. Not ashamed to have gone there, but I was ashamed of what, I thought we were better. It's like Lord of the Flies when like, you know, that the captain turns up at the end and is like, I thought you guys were better than this. And if you'd said to me at the age of 13, that 28 years later, your school would have had two prime ministers and they'd be two of the most hated prime ministers in modern political history. I'd be like, what? Like, no, like, look at this school, look at all the stuff that we've got, like all of the, I was like, no. And then, so it's that, it's reckoning with that.
0: That's an odd thing when you talk about the shame, because I, I hated going to public school. I I detested it. And then the moment that I left, I was terrified of the fact, and I still feel embarrassed talking about it. I still feel, I remember the moment of finding out, like, um, when I found out that John Peel who was a big icon to me when I was a teenager when I found yeah. out he'd gone to, to Shrewsbury school it was like my first moment of going oh oh someone can be cool and do, do interesting things after they be, I, I, it, I really and, and I still now at 52 years old after all those years I still think oh god you know you have a horrible time being in there and then for the rest of your life you think everyone must think I'm a prick because I went there so everyone everyone you were at school with thought you were a prick and then everyone <laughs>
3: Although, <laughs> I would say that that's not how most people who've been to public school feel about it, and so you get further alienated because it's just you on your own. Well, there's
0: a, a, a huge, two yeah, friends yeah. of mine that I have still from. One of them, my mate Ed, who uh, and, and a mate of mine Charlie, who works in a, he's it, kind of become like Dead Poets Society. He, he works in a secondary school in in uh, down in the southeast, and he's just like become this mate. But he, they they were the two people. You know when you connect with people, and then years later you worked out why, but none of you mm. knew what actually connected none of you had the ideology that you have now and yet somewhere along the line all the things that ferment and turn you into those mean that when you meet up again you go oh yeah it turns out we've gone these kind of routes so when you went round that school so you go on a school trip yeah you see it you fall in love with it now was it just about the idea of it or as a child at what point did you start to think about you know what i hope i do when i you know that 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 boy who was walking around seeing that building and fell in love with with, with that institution mm. what did he you think want to do what did he imagine he would do when he was an adult
2: see it's always been there with me because my dad died when i was very young and he got killed in the war well the war there's more than one one of the successive conflicts in uganda he got killed in 1983 so from the age of four you're already being treated like a senior figure in your household right you're already like like that's already your job. You're already having to be um, responsible. It sounds ridiculous, but you're not a kid, right? And I saw how hard my mum would work and I was, you know, of course I was a child, but I never thought like, oh my God, like I'm coming of age. It was like, get to work. And so I was always thinking of, what could I do with an education like this? This is a school where leaders go. So, if you look at what your dad did and he fought in this war and got killed and look what your family have done and they tried to resist authoritarian rule, maybe you could do something with that. Maybe you could go and write. Maybe you could be like in a lawyer or in that kind of, you could be some kind of leader. So, so you're already thinking that's a tool that I could really, really use. Even when you're looking around, I was looking at a school like that. I was like, I could use a tool like that. And that was the age of like 11 and people don't believe that, but it's like, well, look at my background and like, family of refugees that's a completely natural thought process for someone like me at that point so i was already thinking like okay i could if i can go there basically and equip myself well i can equip myself anywhere that's what i was thinking
0: mm. i also w- wondered in terms of the and uh, thinking about the right at the moment not just at the moment but it seems to me it seems at the moment the the divine right and i wondered how much you because I think that the difference sometimes on on the different wings of politics is that sometimes I look at the right wing and I think it's filled with people who uh, believe that you have the destiny you deserve. Now, of course, if your destiny starts by being born into money, then you're already on a, you know, a lot of your destiny is covered. But it does seem to, so, so there's the kind of, you know, the deserving rich and the deserving poor that we've all got. And I wondered how much you... So and I think it's it's very prevalent in, in the way that our news media works as well, in terms of the different narratives of those of you know, this, this weekend we saw the number of uh, millionaires and billionaires who've, who've been making money out of the furlough scheme. Um and that will never that hit almost no newspapers. That hit, right. it was a bit big. big story at the Guardian, but if that was about a doll scrounger, yes. that was about forty quid. And there's something about, but those people are already billionaires, so actually they kind of deserve to work mm. out the system. Actually, and exactly, and yeah. that person has nothing, and they're trying to not have nothing, and they don't deserve that. And I wondered how much you saw that yes. mindset.
2: Yeah, huge amount. That was the huge. This is a huge thing, I'm glad you mentioned this. I remember one guy, he was actually at uni with me, but it was a a mentality I saw at school as well. And he actually said the words came out of his mouth and he was always like seen as like one of the nice guys. I never cared for him. And then he said something that really sort of highlighted it. He said, the super wealthy, even that phrase, the super wealthy have earned the right not to pay tax. He said, because capitalism is a game and they've gamed the system and the winners of that game deserve not to pay tax. He actually said that. I remember where he said it. It was a garden, it was a it was a it was a barbecue in someone's garden in Hackney, and he said it. And I remember his face, I remember the law firm. He I remember I remember. And this is why I moved of out of Hackney. I couldn't I the, bear hearing that. <laughs> and Josie, the smugness on his face as he said it. And I was and like, like, there's yeah, there's no consequence for that comment at all. There was a thing at school about, it was really interesting, it was trying to make people ashamed of of, of new money. Hmm. Because the old money didn't have as much money as the new money, so the only way it could like <laughs> remain relevant was by patronising the new money. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh my god! Like two million pounds of old money is worth ten million of you, and eventually the new money is like, no, it's not. Like <laughs> I've got more money. <laughs>
3: Capitalism's a game, mate. Sorry. <laughs> That's the old
0: Alan Clark line, isn't it? Alan Clark, who of course was was born into money. We used to say about Michael Heseltine, he's the kind of man who had to buy his own furniture. You know and that was the thing you know you didn't wow. in, and and that that always comes back to me as those different delineations that the that, that so see. In
2: the conversations about wealth are so interesting' it's because everyone kind of knows who has it, even though mm. you all wear the same uniforms there mm. is a whisper network of like who's got what and that story I tell about the one guy who is extremely wealthy um boy at school and his best friend and when he wasn't in the room, his best friend I was the like, best thing about that guy is that he's, he's he's fucking rich. And I I never felt so sorry for someone wealthy as that. I never, in that moment, I was like, my God. But then the the sympathy subsided because I thought, no, he's going to be okay because he's self-aware enough. He's not stupid. Like he knows that this person that's near him is someone he will shed like snakeskin at a certain point Mm. because he's really, really aware of how this guy's processing him. You know, know, like um, you go into certain spaces and you're aware, you're hyper-aware of how you're being perceived.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I think there's like that for a lot of wealthy people. There's a lot of wealth, the, the, Eton was funny because it was like a school within a school. You had the wealth, you had people at Eton, and then you had within Eton, you had like groups of people who knew each other, who had wealth and would kind of commune with people. So my friend, one of my friends, he was like, I was at school with him, but like, you know, he had a place in Southwest London, and I was like, oh, like, you know, a middle-class kid. And he wasn't, he like one of the wealthiest guys in Europe. And I'd known him for years. We'd go for like dinner. I was like, oh yeah. And he goes, yeah, people came, people at school were kind of, they were drawn to me by the wealth. And I was like, what wealth, man? Like, you're just like, you're from, you're from South West London. He was like, uh, no, that was just, a, that was a place that we had there. And I'm like.
3: Hey, that's man. how I feel about comedy. Suddenly yeah. I'm like, you as well? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like and people, everyone, you scratch the surface. You know, it's amazing about,
2: the amazing thing about like wealthy white people, the camouflage.
3: <laughs> this is something I wanted to talk about actually because I think yeah. as a society the people who you know are making the most money are not famous they don't this was you were saying about this in your book about how people don't they're not easily searchable on Google they have the most privacy because they don't want people to know how well they're doing at everyone else's expense.
2: The silence i mean the english like the English memoir it is you know the silence of the lambs it's like. I mean, are they actually lambs? Is the question. I mean, they're really not. But <laughs> but it is the English superpower is silence. Mm. It is the greatest superpower the world's ever seen. It's mind blowing. It's just the ability just to keep shtum at crucial moments of history.
3: This is good because I always knew deep down I wasn't English, and now I really feel it. I really feel it. Well, ever since <laughs> like you I've moved just over never the been able to really keep. Changed, but my problem is, I I just can't. I'd be terrible, and this is why. Like I feel like I couldn't. There's a like, guy on Twitter,
2: you... Carl Sharrow, his uh, Twitter handle is at Carl and and he one day said, he was oh, like, yeah. he's like, how these the English, that, the indirect nature of their communication, like all of this, you know, oh, not quite suppositions, how the hell did they take over the entire planet, or like most of the planet, like, when they can't communicate? And I was like, that's exactly how they did it. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. That's exactly how they did it. it like, oh, oh, you wouldn't mind if I just, um, could I just, uh, wouldn't mind if I just, just draw the lines here and put up this this piece of material here. Oh, oh next morning, oh yeah, that, that's a flag actually. Oh, these lines, oh, that, that's a border actually. Oh, oh, can I just, oh, sorry. Oh, this, my foot is bleeding. Yeah, we shot you because you walked over the line, which we put here last night, like that's- Which was your fault,
0: to be honest, because yeah, we did that's... put the line there. Oh, And I mean, sorry. I bloody didn't want to shoot you. I was bloody annoyed at it, there's a bullet gone, you know, and but I said, so, so, so let's just not do it again.
2: It's I mean, incredible, can... it's like this kind of, oh no, we couldn't possibly, oh, this like, and it's like, well, that's how it happens.
0: No I do I I also think there's another side of it which is we always imagine that that's how it is so when you do actually read about things that happened for instance you know whether it's looking back you know at the famine in ireland whether it's looking at the famines in india and things like that mm-hmm. we like to imagine that it's a man in a pith helmet who was actually rather embarrassed by the whole starving everyone situation yeah. and shooting them all and and so we also managed to remove the barbary, yeah. barbaric yes. face which really mm-hmm. was there mm-hmm. at the time i think
2: like kitchener giving um the skull of like one of the leaders uh to the royal college of surgeons a skull it's that's such like a game perfect what's that a- thing analogy of, in, in, isn't it in like game of thrones when they're drinking blood from the skull of jail mormont like there's then if you're drinking blood from the skull of and i was like that's like that's like what the but it's in.
3: It's the washing of it into the respectable institution, isn't it? It's like, I've done this despicable thing, Yes. but here it is now, the Royal College of Surgeons, the Royal College, mind you, you know, and it shall be used. It's so, it, yeah, it's such an encapsulation, I think, of, of how Britain kind of churns these things into something seemingly respectable.
2: Well, yeah, you look at that Operation Legacy and how they destroyed documents mm-hmm. of you know, the British empire records for like 20 odd years, like a bonfire, 20 year bonfire, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. and look what we still already know.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: What was destroyed?
3: And also just- What was the,
2: destroyed?
3: But the fucking goal of calling it Operation Legacy,
2: you know? This is, there is something so, there is such, and this is why I say, you know, the thing about the, the, the victimhood and then the, the domination. Mm-hmm. That's it right there. Mm. that's it right there, the knowing smirk that right there, that unique mm. you know call it a toxic silence, a caustic silence, whatever you will, but that right there Operation Legacy, ha 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 like, that's psychopathic mm. that's psychopathic actually and but it's how... why, yeah, yeah, sorry carry on carry no on. no no, you carry on well, it's why deep down when I write about these topics I'm nervous about certain responses, I'm like hang on a minute, I'm getting to say things that people never said in my position they never got the chance to even say it some of those brilliant minds that never had, and I'm not putting myself in their category at all, they just never had the access to the platforms that I do. They never got to say this stuff, mm-hmm. you know?
3: And then how do you feel when you do start thinking about kind of where we go from here and how the future is built? Uh, yeah, I think too about broad. A lot.
2: No, it's not too broad. It's completely why I wrote the book, like confession inspires confession. I'm hoping that I wrote this and I was honest with myself about a lot of things. There's a lot of things I couldn't include that people might say, Oh my goodness. This, this there's a lot of stuff I left out. Mm-hmm. Put it that way. And if anyone goes, Oh, you should some more, I said, Well, actually, there's a lot I couldn't say. Actually, this is what we
3: need to do, a late night podcast called One of Them After Hours.
2: There is <laughs> honestly, one day when we sit down and have a coffee and we have a drink or whatever, your choice of beverages, we'll talk about stuff I couldn't put in there. Yeah. Because it was bad. It was really bad the stuff I couldn't say. And like I want people to know that because some of it was stuff that I couldn't verify directly. Some of it was stuff that I'd heard. Some of it was like, just stuff that wasn't, you know, my place to talk about. Yeah. There was, there was worse stuff in there. And um,
3: But that is hard when you're writing a memoir. When you're writing fiction, you can always have that cloak of like, no, no, it's fiction, it's fiction. Whereas with a memoir, yeah, you, you just simply are not legally able, especially when there's that kind of money floating yeah. around.
2: And I had to go, I had to sort of say, and it was, you know, um, it was more in relation to what boys had done and stuff that boys had done that I knew they'd done. Um, but it wasn't my place to say uh, some of it. And um, where do we go from here? Do you know what? We hold ourselves accountable, actually. We don't sit there and scoff when the next Boris Johnson is like making his way up. And I talk about momentum, like you, the key to stopping authoritarian behaviour in its tracks is to stop momentum early. Mm -hmm. You can't allow, oh, it's just him being him. No, you can't Mm -hmm. do that. You can't laugh it off. You can't go to that that person's garden party and just like kind of, Grin into, your, grin into your glass of fizzy drink and go back to your nice like cushy job. You've got to say something. And the reason I say this is because I, I've got a friend and he was on um, Facebook uh, a few months ago at the height of the Black Lives Matter protests. And he was like, I've been in my corporate job for years and I've never spoken about race in the workplace. This is like a really wealthy guy. This is a guy that's like, you know, made loads of money and like got a lot of authority. He'd never spoken about race once in 20 years. And I thought to myself, I've known you for so long. And you were always outspoken and private, right? You're, when we hung out and I was like, you bit your tongue for 20 years. I was like, what authority do you have? And I was embarrassed. And I was like, that's got to stop. And he was like, now I'm speaking out. I was like, yeah, but it's, it's been 20 years. Mm-hmm. That's 20 years of conversations you ignored where people who are now running this country could have had the momentum checked. You didn't do it. And a generation of us didn't do it. We were at school. We were at uni with people, politicians in particular, and this goes for uni as well, who we were on their way to be bigger and bigger. And at each point it was like, oh no, oh, they just that's just their point of view. And they had like pretty hard right points of view. And when it came to it, people wouldn't speak out. The cowardice of our generation. And here's the thing. I think we're gonna be more hated than boomers. When it's done, we're gonna be more hated than boomers. Do you know why? Because boomers were not aware of the rapid acceleration of gentrification the way that we were, or the rapid ice melt. I think we're gonna be more hated than boomers. I honestly believe it because there are identifiable conversations and moments where things could have changed and people didn't have them because they were too busy thinking about the picket fence in Hertfordshire.
3: Uh, I think there's something else,
0: though, that Josie mentioned at the beginning, which plays into this, which is the fear of, as you said, hypocrisy and the fear of... so. I think there is something very much, I don't know how much it is a national characteristic. I don't know how broad it is across the world, but it does feel to me like something that has, a, a, I would in particular say a certain Englishness to it, which is, oh, I mean, is it my right? Because I'm not such a great person. And I think that, that loss of nerve is something, that fear that you will reveal, as you said, the hypocrisy. I mean, it's used the whole time, which is, oh, that's interesting. You did that, but I know you didn't do that. So it's much better to do nothing than to attempt to do anything but in I'm terms worried. of in, in that way that the I I, that's very I,
2: potent. But I, I think I wonder if it. You know what's weird though, is that another example of English deference masking barbarism. Is that another example? Because if you think about it, there's behaviour people accept from our prime minister they'd never accept if he was in charge of their students at in one class. Mm-hmm. Boris Johnson was a form teacher for the same parents that voted for him. They'd be like, they'd get him out. He was like, there was a board of governors, they'd get, they'd get him out within a term. So they accept treatment for other people's children, they would never accept for their own, which is why I don't think it's deference. I think it's actually something, I think in the large part, I think it's actually something a bit more sinister, actually. And I, that sounds harsh, but I think it's actually a kind of, I will look the other way because I'm actually doing quite well out yep. of this.
3: It's individualistic, oh,
2: I Yeah, I think there, there is definitely a hip hop, there's definitely a hip hop, don't get me wrong. But over time, I've become very sceptical about the existence of the silent, decent majority. If you're in a playground and someone's having their head kicked in and the silent, decent majority looks and stands in a circle and watches the kid have his head kicked in, how decent is the silent, decent majority if they're watching? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I this sounds brutal, but I've watched the best analysis of English society, specifically English society, is years and years Years and years, I think, absolutely nailed the kind of that sort of middle England strata of I'm gonna look the other way because someone else is probably gonna step in at this point. It nailed it in a devastating. It, and I, when I say that, I'm like, I find that heartbreaking. Mm. Having been in like a boarding school, like I, I we had bullies at school, um, and we had people that were ignorant at school, and. The thing I say in the book, when I was ignorant at school, I got called out, I was ignorant about homophobia, I got called out and I had to deal with that and I had to own that and I had to learn and grow, whatever. So this is a thing where I navigated my own ignorance and we had bullies at school. And I remember thinking when we get out into the real world, the world's gonna actually handle people like that. And it didn't. And that's why I think I've taken it and I sound quite passionate on this podcast is because I take a lot of the things that happened really personally because I've seen behaviour that I regard as bullying be rewarded, I think we're terrified. I think all of these equivalences basically are ways to make ourselves feel comfortable, even though we know at some intuitive level that things are really bad. I think Mm. it's the equivalent, I've used this analogy before, it's like using, it's like chopping up your own house and using it for firewood, (laughs) you know? these equivalences, I remember talking to a friend about this and you know, he was talking about the housing inequalities in London and the cost of everything and this and that and it's so expensive and so hard to buy and I said, you know, maybe what they should do is like, maybe they should progressively tax people that buy multiple homes and maybe like, so if you buy a second home it should be taxed at this amount and that amount and this amount and that amount and so so there's like a disincentive to just like buy up a ton of places. Mm-hmm. And if the money goes from the second home you buy, then it gets directly into the local council economy and it goes and it funds services and the homes. And, and this is a guy that had been talking for the previous 20 minutes about how expensive everything was. And he looked at me with something, the acidity of his expression, and it was as hostile as he's ever spoken to me. He said, are you a communist or something? And I'm like, I literally was trying to help him. I'd sat there and I was like, oh, how can I make things easy for my friend? And I was like, oh, how about this? And he looked at me with such hostility and I was like at some level I thought we're really in trouble
3: mm-hmm.
2: we're really in trouble because this is somebody who is like he's been around he's seen different things he's seen inequality and he's so tightly wedded to a system of unfairness that mm-hmm. any slight attempt to change things positively is met with such hostility even the mild thing and I, I always talk about Ed Miliband because we don't talk about Ed Miliband enough Everyone's like Corbyn, Corbyn. I'm like, hang on a minute. All your people criticizing Corbyn in 2015, you had Ed Miliband right there mm-hmm. talking about the unity candidate. Ed Miliband was right there. And what happened? People went full anti Semitism. Some, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. some newspapers, they know where they full anti Semite on his father, mm-hmm. Ralph Miliband. I thought of
3: him as well with like the sh- like, him, with, subtle, insidious they things went, I said North about London, him.
2: Thing, they went right up. There. We don't talk about Ed Miliband because it's a national shame, because that was full. Full bore anti whatever caliber anti Semitism. It's horrifying,
1: yeah. horrifying
2: anti Semitism. And we don't talk about it because I think it's a national shame. Because that country, the, the, England specifically, had a candidate who wasn't perfect but could have made things better. He would have been a better prime minister for this country. And they yeah. laughed him out of town. Oh, his nose is funny, his, his, his accent's funny, all this stuff. And they eating they don't talk a about sandwich.
0: Is't that an amazing thing? That's eating all it takes. <laughs> yeah. but that that's a very because that brings in another point though, which is I think about the problem is if you have the majority of the media and the majority of megaphones being, controlled by a very very small number of people with a very very specific agenda mm. so almost and a the lot of, money. of our press mm. but that yeah the money thing doesn't it because that's obvious, yeah but take that as but the but infinite so,
3: resources is what i mean yeah, but continue. the
0: main thing is that you know on just on the fact that these are opinions so so most people don't receive i i, I think there's a thing Howard Zinn, the anarchist historian used to say He say if the american people knew what had been done in their name they would be truly appalled but they don't and I do wonder about the fact that you know most people don't even really read the newspapers. They read the headlines and they go to Sudoku and they do those things. So, so the received information and the fact that we are very often detached means that people go, ah, oh, yeah, but you know I have read these things and that guy, um, that that becomes your reality tunnel, your yeah. reality tunnel, yeah. and and that seems to be, that seems to be why it's almost impossible to get a left wing government. One of the reasons is you will always be told. You know what's going to. Even though the right have had an incredible ability to always be a safe pair of hands, which have always dropped everything, smashed it, or stolen stuff, and yet it doesn't matter. Because Mm. when it comes again, they go, but they're a safe pair of hands. We've just seen a safe pair of hands. 126,000 people die with this safe pair of hands. A doctor friend of mine who's been at the forefront of of dealing with the situation that's been on for the last year, this time last year said, oh my God, I literally cannot imagine a worse government in history to be in charge of the situation we're about to deal with. And yet still in many people's minds, imagine who it could have been. They're a safe pair of hands.
2: I had a good friend who I was talking to and we, don't, we no longer speak about the government because he works in the medical profession. I was criticising them and he got really, really defensive and he was like, look, they're doing the best they can. And this is like a extremely smart guy, like top of his profession and who would regard himself as, you know, progressive left voter. And I was like, whoa, and he really just bought into it. And I eventually said, hang on a minute. You think these criticisms are all coming from a place of hate and partisanship? I said, my mom's a doctor. Right. Like I've got skin in this game as well. It's about, don't you deserve a better standard of treatment than this? And like, you know, Germany, we've had issues with our lockdown. It's been brutal. It's been too timid. The vaccine rollout's been terrible, much, you know, not, not as good as England's by any stretch or the UK's. I said, so this doesn't come from a place of like national partisanship. Why do you think this this is the, the ability of the media to turn everything to like a kind of a tribal game when it's about quality of treatment? And this is why I kind of despair a bit. Sorry, Josie, you were going to say.
3: No, no, I was just going to say, uh, for me, it's about a false notion that everything needs to be some sort of entertaining debate and that everything needs. And I think that links in with your book about, you know, competition and about being taught literally to debate, like as opposed to, you know, any kind of mindset of cooperation, any kind of mindset of, yes, but how can we strive for the best here is replaced by how can we compete and how can we win? When that is like, how is that possibly, that's good for running, it's not good for running the country, you know? It's like right. good for games. It's good for, a very
2: specific, it's good for a very specific type of career. Yeah. You know, we got, uh, Rishi Sunak is the chancellor. And how did he make his money? He make, he's made his money by betting on the collapse of the financial system. And that's someone we put in charge of the economy. Someone who's wedded to that ideology, that's someone who became wealthy off when it takes all, right? Mm-hmm. Now that person mm-hmm. has a role in our society. It's not that one though. Mm-hmm. It's not that one. And I, I, that's what makes me, and it's wild. You tell people that they're like, oh, well, maybe not. I like, no, like he placed positions that were acknowledged to have accelerated aspects of that collapse. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, he, he made money off that. Like, that's a thing, that's a fact. The Times reported it, you know, people don't listen, listen to this like, oh, no, you're left. Well, read it to the Times, right? Mm-hmm. And to me, it's wild. And the bar is so low as well for the right. I remember reading this piece in the Financial Times. Um, it was a, an opinion piece in 2015 that said that Ed Miliband was preoccupied with the issue of inequality. Preoccupied. So we back we back the um, Conservative government, as the Continuity government. I read this. I quoted this years later. I quoted it a few months ago on Twitter. You know what's funny? Two financial journalists looked at the piece that I quoted and they're like, Oh my god, he's actually not quoting out of context. It's like, what you think some lefty poet doesn't read the Financial Times? Like, what? Like, that's, that was kind of the tone of it. And one of them was just simply so read it he like, <laughs> I know it was like he was like, oh my God. He was like, actually, that's what we said. It's like, yeah, you did say that. We were paying attention. You said that Binabam mm-hmm. was obsessed, was preoccupied with inequality, and here we are now. Mm-hmm. Everyone well, was too is... busy. Sorry, everyone was I mean, to, to rant. No, no. Everyone was too busy laughing at the Jewish North Londoner chewing a sandwich, weirdly, with a nasal accent. They were too busy laughing and giggling. They were giggling while this country was sinking. And here we are.
0: Hello. Sorry to disturb the conversation. Just to say, you are listening to the abridged version of Josie and Robin's book, Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version, then you can support us via Patreon and get all of the other bits of tittle-tattle that dropped out of our mouth. I just wanted to... I wanted to ask you just the final thing on this but which is what do you, do you imagine how different you might've been had you gone to the grammar school? I mean, that was going to be your destination was you were going to grammar school. Do you think the person you've become, do you think that experience of those five years, uh, how much did that make you into a different human being? What do you think you might've been if you hadn't gone to Eton? You know, it's funny.
2: It's funny. I have the control experiment because uh, one of my closest friends, um, when I was at school, he went on to grammar school and like we reconnected uh, 22 years later. And we went for drink of all places in Kingsway, which I've never (laughs) been for drink for, but we all worked in like proximity. So he's walking up the street. uh, uh, My other friend is coming as well. And he's late, like he's now, he's gone into a career, like he went, he was a property developer now, but he went for a time, he went, he was a dancer in like Bollywood and like, you know, had this amazing, yeah, modeled and everything. And he's walking in and the moment he walks in, he's like five minutes later. I was like, you see, he's changed. He's gone Hollywood. I knew it. And like, we were 12 years old again. And we, were 10, and we were like destroying each other. And the chat was there and it was like, dude, you haven't changed at all. Like they were like, whoa, like you went into that whole world and you came out and you're like the same, I think would have been the same dude, actually. I think I was the same because he was like, there's no, even the other day when I wrote a piece on a, I wrote a piece actually about um, what was it? The uh, Sarah Everard may she rest in peace um i wrote these at sarah everard and he shared on instagram oh thanks so much thanks for this brother and i we're still really tight i go around and see him at like um christmas and new year when i'm allowed to Hmm. and i'm like my god it's like i went on this whole odyssey and they were like we didn't see you for like years you went to boarding school you cut yourself off because i kind of thought i had to because i couldn't have survived a world like that knowing that my best mates were just out there just down the road in some cases, but I, was like, I can't expose myself to a world which is so free because I've got to just live and discipline myself. But I think I would have been the same person. I think I would have been always inquiring. I think any environment I was in, I'd be critiquing it and trying to like, you know, for the better in my own sort of, you know, maybe slightly self-righteous way, but yeah. Well, was well, saying-
0: just like seven up.
3: But bear in mind them. as well, like grammar schools, I think are still geared towards producing conservative uh conservatives.
2: So Right I, I, I think I honestly, something. honestly, like I, I can safely say if I if I hadn't um if, if these people weren't still my close friends, then I could say I would have changed. But i I'm, I think I'm the same person actually. Like obviously there's a lot I went through that made things different, but fundamentally, like and that's not not true for everyone actually actually it's not true for everyone
0: but that's i wonder that because we've talked about it before on seven up the michael Apted documentary series you know which you have you ever seen that
2: no yeah. it basically
0: started off in was it 1963 i think which was a, a group of seven-year-olds from from different backgrounds and you see that the destiny, the, the one thing that does change with destiny is that w- the one child that discovers that, that um, uh, ends up suffering from uh, mental illness, and that's oh, kind wow. of like, okay. and yeah. that that hits him when he's a teenager. And you do see that that's the one where you see the change from the seven-year-old into the sixty-three-year-old. But yeah. for most of them, and so the little boy who you know a seven-year-old sitting going, and then I, I will probably go to modeling college, um, Oxford, I think, and then I'm hoping to go and and it's all there. And then the kid that becomes a jockey and then becomes a taxi driver. All of the little things. And then there's a lovely little boy whose whose dad is a missionary. And he just says, right, he says, "Um, my heart's desire is to see my daddy. Right, And in years to come, the guy who suffered from mental health problems, who's the one who takes him in? The guy who said my heart's desire was to see my daddy. That that humanity wow. that was in him then. Wow, still. There. And it's such a th- that's why I was interested in that in asking you that is because I often wonder at what point you go, yeah, sometimes something major can happen. And of course,
2: for you it happened when you were four years old as well.
0: Yeah. It's at such an hmm. early
2: stage. Um, I think it's I think that I think the watch, I think that's the thing. A lot of us don't change. I think um but it's also like work. It's like constantly like I mean, one thing I talk about, there's actually, because I, I don't know if you saw in the news, but recently there's allegations about, I mean, there's this open letter that's sent to Dulwich College about um, sexual assault and harassment, 250 testimonies, an open letter compiled um, by a former student at the school, who's now at Oxford, 19-year-old boy, well, young man, compiled this list of 250 testimonies of sexual assault and harassment. It was in the sunny times and they said like this happened at Dulwich college, but this could happen to any kind of school like this, any kind of private school. And it's utterly harrowing. I read it last night at 4 AM and I couldn't sleep since. It's absolutely horrific, heartbreaking, harrowing. And you read that and you're like, like those, how do I say this best in relation to how we change it? that, that, that guy is so brave because he held the school to account, right? Like he, that was obviously in him from an early age to go somewhere and speak his truth. And like, he's going to change. He's going to change the whole conversation. Mm. And my memoir, right? I, I didn't really socialize. The one thing my memoir, my memoir doesn't have any stories about interaction with girls and stuff, because I I didn't go and hang out with anyone from school outside outside uh, school time. I just didn't. I didn't hang out with anyone. So that whole side of like interaction with women, I never really saw it. I never saw it, never experienced it. But I'm now wondering, reading that letter, because that thing was written. It was based between 2012 and 2019. I'm like, that's new. It's not historic yeah. allegations. That's no. a historic allegation. No, and it's, just it's
3: now. after there was a big sort of societal reckoning, somewhat about right. abuse. You know, that that's after there was a, at least a very prominent conversation.
2: Exactly. So I suppose what I'm saying is like, what else was there that I didn't see? Like I've written this memoir, but what what surface did it scratch? Because the entitlement that I saw at school was only in relate, was kind of in, um. it was like sodium that hadn't been added to water yet. Mm-hmm. I never really saw its most caustic effects because it wasn't tested against, you know, like we, we had now and again like encounters with state schools that hated us and they would kick the hell out of us. So in patches I saw how we interacted with them and how they reacted back. But I never saw the interaction with women actually, not really, like not at that level or that scale, because I never, I didn't socialize outside school with anyone from school, right? Mm. So the Dulwich College allegations, I read them and I'm like, like Dr. Joe Spence was my, I, he, he did my interview at Eton. Like he was my, he interviewed me to let me in. Like, and he's the headmaster of Dulwich now. And um, uh, Gary Savage, who's now the headmaster at Westminster, he was, he taught me history. Like these are people that I knew. And then when you have, you, you have Prince you have Prince Harry on television talking about I didn't really know much about racism until I'd married Megan. I was like, well, you were four years, you were like four years younger than me. Like you were, we were at school and like, you didn't know, you're you're younger than me. You were you at Eton, we were at Eton at the same time you are younger than me and you didn't know what racism was till you married a woman who was biracial. And I'm like, I was in that world. Mm-hmm. That to mm-hmm. me is like, this is why I had to write this, right? I had to make sense of it. I had to be like, this is, this was a strange moment to be in that world. And I'm not sure what this book will achieve, to be honest, but I'm I'm glad that I, I'm glad that I wrote it.
3: Mm. Well, also how could you possibly know what effects it's gonna have? It's important to put it out there.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's right.
3: Thank you so much for talking to us. And thanks for letting us have such a sort of interesting, wide ranging conversation about such big, uh and sort of difficult things um if people want to get hold of the book it comes out on the 15th of april i really recommend it it's such i i think as a book it does so many things at once i think it's just like on one level it's just a really lovely way to get to know the you the person who's written it you know and then on on so many other levels politically societally and also has loads about football in it you know if you're a fan of football football. it really does have a lot of like very sweet sporting memoir in it as well but it's a great book and um, yeah i really recommend it to everyone
2: thank you so much it's called
0: one of them
1: yes i don't mention the title thank you very much for listening moose's book is out now make sure you go and check that out Patreon.com slash bookshambles is the URL you need to type into your browser of choice to support and subscribe and get extra content, longer episodes, extra series, behind the scenes, all that sort of stuff that I've already mentioned. Rate and review five stars on Apple Podcasts. That helps us out as well. Also on Spotify. I think you can rate podcasts on Spotify now as well. If you can do that, that would be great. Back next week with another new episode. Until then, take care, stay safe, and we will see you soon. Bye.
0: This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.